Chapter 8, Part 1 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by Samuel Cheatham. Chapter 8, Part 1 Ecclesiastical Ceremonies and Art. The most essential portions of Christian worship were not exposed to all men without distinction. The fear of impious imitations or parodies, such as Justin thought that he saw in the mysteries of Mithras, no doubt restrained Christians from making public in a world still largely pagan rites which they themselves reverenced with the deepest awe. In Justin's description, it does not appear that any but the baptized were present at the administration of baptism or the Eucharist, nor is the form of the consecration of the elements revealed. As in the apostolic age, non-believers might be present at ordinary meetings for reading of the scriptures and preaching. So in the fourth and fifth centuries, unbaptized persons were admitted to hear the Bible lessons and exposition, which might prepare them for admission to the inner mysteries of the faith. Those who were admitted to this more open worship were, however, for the most part not mere heathens, but either catechumens seeking admission to the mysteries, or penitents desiring readmission, and the portion of the Eucharistic service at which they were present was called the liturgy or the mass of the catechumens. To these, at the end of their instruction, which might extend over two or three years, were imparted what were regarded as the most sacred treasures of the Christian faith, the essentials of the baptismal rite, and the confession of faith to be made by the baptized, the Lord's Prayer, the form of consecrating and administering the Holy Eucharist. The baptismal confession became the password by which Christians knew each other, and also the solemn promise of allegiance which the Christian soldier made to the great captain, as may be supposed from the reservation of the creed, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity was not spoken of in the presence of heathens. To the carefully guarded secrets of the Christians, the name mystery came to be applied, as to rites only known to the initiated. The mystery which surrounded the most sacred rites of the Church, of course, gave greater importance to the catechumenate, the preparatory instruction through which all candidates for baptism had to pass. The usual solemn seasons of baptism were Easter and Pentecost, the later called in English White Sunday, from the appearance of the newly baptized in their white robes, but in the East the Epiphany, when the baptism of the Lord was commemorated, was regarded as an appropriate time for baptism, and in the West Christmas and Saints' Days, especially the nativity of St. John Baptist. The bishops of Rome, however, strongly insisted on the observance of the ancient seasons, unless in the case of those who were in danger of death. Where the great season of baptism was Easter Eve, those among the catechumens who were near the end of their course were, during Lent, brought under more special instruction. To these capatentes, as they were called, the articles of the creed, the nature of the sacraments, and of the penitential discipline of the church were carefully explained. The forty days of catechizing were a period of fasting, vigil, prayer, and countenance. An epoch in the instruction was the solemn delivery of the creed by word of mouth to the candidates, 
which took place at Rome in the fourth week of Lent, generally on the Wednesday, at Milan on the eve of Palm Sunday, in Gaul and in Gothic Spain on Palm Sunday itself, in proconsular Africa probably on the eve of the fourth Sunday in Lent. This was followed by the giving of the Lord's Prayer. At Rome, and perhaps elsewhere, the giving of the Creed was preceded by the solemn handing over of the Gospels. The ceremonies of baptism itself, the interrogations, the renunciations, the exorcisms, the blessing of the water, the unctions, the three immersions, the milk and honey, the imposition of hands, remained essentially the same as in the preceding period, though with some additional details. The kindling of lamps immediately after the baptism is first heard of in the fourth century, as is also the putting on of white apparel, which, if first assumed on Easter Eve, was worn until the Sunday after Easter, known as the Sunday of the putting off the white garments. Another ceremony which appears early in the fourth century is the washing of the feet of the baptized. But if the changes in the actual ceremony were unimportant, its general aspect changed much when the church gained its freedom. Quote, it would be difficult to imagine any scene more moving than that picture to us in the pages of St. Cyril, when on the eve of the Savior's resurrection, at the doors of the church of the Anastasis at Jerusalem, the white-robed band of the newly baptized was seen approaching from the neighboring baptistery, and the darkness was turned into day in the brightness of unnumbered lights. As the joyous chant swelled upwards, Blessed is he whose unrighteousness is forgiven and whose sin is covered. It might well be thought that angels' voices were heard echoing the glad acclaim. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth no sin, and in whose spirit there is no guile. It is clear that in the period with which we are dealing, baptism was commonly administered to such as were capable of instruction in the mysteries. Yet infants were also baptized. Quote, Let the lambs of our flock be sealed from the first, close quote, says Isaac the Great in the early part of the fifth century. Quote, that the robber may see the mark impressed upon their bodies and tremble. Let the children of the kingdom be carried from the womb to baptism. Close quote. A great hindrance to the baptism of infants was the desire to reserve for a later age the sacrament which might, it was thought, wash away the sins of the previous life. Even the pious Monica preferred to defer her son's baptism when she saw him no longer in peril of death. Those who were lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God wished to defer the purifying washing to the latest moment of their lives. Against this view, which, as may be supposed, was not favorable to morality, the greatest teachers most earnestly protested, and it gradually ceased to prevail. The chrismation and laying on of hands, followed in ancient times, immediately on the washing of water, and this is still the custom of the East. In the West, if no bishop was present at the baptism, the baptized were presented to him afterwards at some convenient season, this part of the service being reserved to the Episcopal order. The Arabic canons, called Nicene, desire the Corepiscopus in his circuits to cause the boys and girls to be brought to him, 
that he may sign them with the cross, pray over them, lay his hands upon them, and bless them. When heretics were readmitted to the church, even if their baptism was held valid, they were in almost all cases required to receive imposition of hands from a Catholic bishop. A layman was permitted to baptize one who lay in peril of death, who, if he survived, was to be brought to the bishop for the laying on of hands. An African council in the year 398 forbade women to baptize, notwithstanding which in later times midwives were instructed to baptize newborn infants in case of need. The question of validity of baptism conferred by heretics, already agitated in the second century, reappeared at a later time, especially in connection with the Donatists. The general conclusion arrived at in the West may be stated in the words of St. Augustine, with regard to Marcion. If Marcion, he says, quote, hallowed baptism by the evangelic words, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, the right was sound, even though his own faith, as he understood by those words something different from that which Catholic truth teaches, was not sound, but stained with the fictions of falsehood. And he elsewhere defines his conception of the effect of baptism among heretics. In heresy, men may have baptism, although it does not begin to avail them unto salvation until they have been converted from the error of their ways. On this principle, the Second Council of Arles directed that Photinians coming over to the church should be baptized, but that Bonosians should not, as they have already received baptism in the name of the Holy Trinity. In the East, the view prevailed that baptism must be received from blameless priests, or it became pollution. To this effect, Athanasius declared that he who is sprinkled by heretics is rather defiled in ungodliness than redeemed with the ransom of Christ. Jovinian, a man in other respects also eccentric, ascribed extravagant effects to baptism. He endeavored to show, said his opponent Jerome, that they who had received baptism in the fullness of faith could not be tempted of the devil. If any were so tempted, they had received the baptism of water only and not of the Spirit. All who had kept their baptism unstained had the same reward in the kingdom of heaven as, on the other hand, all who fell had the same punishment. His views were condemned by Ambrose and by Siricius, bishop of Rome. The doctrine of the Holy Eucharist, important as it is, did not become the subject of any conspicuous controversy or of synodal decision within the first six centuries. There was no sharp authoritative definition of the effect of Eucharistic consecration. Various teachers expressed their opinions in diverse ways without condemning those who expressed their views differently. All agreed that there was something in the mystery to be looked upon with reverence and awe. All agreed that the bread and wine became, by priestly consecration, in some sense the body and blood of Christ but the nature of the change was variously conceived and expressed. Some regarded the presence of Christ in the elements as a spiritual one, effectual only to the faithful receiver. Others conceived the effect of consecration rather as a change of substance in the bread and wine, while the greater number of teachers adopted neither of these views to the exclusion of the other. 
almost all spoke of a change or transformation, terms which were also applied to the baptismal water and to chrism after benediction. Those who were most under the influence of Origen, as Eusebius of Caesarea, Athanasius, and Gregory of Nazianzus, inclined to the more spiritual view, which also found vigorous support in the West from Augustine and his followers, influenced as they were by the belief that only those who were predestined to life could really and truly feed upon the Son of God. Cyril of Jerusalem, Chrysostom, Hilary of Poitiers, and Ambrose incline rather to the conception of a change in the substance of the elements. Gregory of Nyssa held the peculiar view that as, during the Lord's earthly life, bread and wine became by assimilation part of his natural body, so, after his ascension, by the working of his divine power, the consecrated bread and wine become part of his glorified body. The Nestorian controversy was not without effect upon the views which were held as to the nature of the Eucharistic change. Those who held that the divine nature of Christ did not annihilate the human also held that the presence of Christ in the Eucharistic elements did not annihilate the proper substance of the bread and wine. It remains, said Theodoret, in its own essence or substance, the proper nature or substance of the bread and wine, said Pope Galatius, does not cease to exist. Still, the popular tendency was naturally to the more obvious and easily conceivable view of the mystic change, and this is found embodied in liturgies. The definite doctrine of transubstantiation emerged from the scholastic philosophy in the Middle Ages. We have already seen that from very ancient times, the Eucharist was regarded as, in some sense, a sacrifice, as in it was commemorated and pleaded the one all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. This conception acquired greater prominence in the fourth century, and the fathers sometimes use expressions which almost seem to imply that in the Holy Eucharist the sacrifice of Christ is repeated without shedding of blood. Such expressions as the spiritual sacrifice, the bloodless service, are frequent both in sermons and in liturgies, but still they imply rather a commemoration than an actual sacrifice. Yet Chrysostom also speaks as if in the consecrated Eucharist the lamb that was slain were actually lying on the altar. The connection of propitiatory masses with the doctrine of purgatorial fire is not found before the time of Gregory the Great. In the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, the same elements are found which were already in use in the third century, but, as in the case of baptism, with some amplification and added splendor. The first portion of the service, to which catechumens were admitted, consisted principally of prayer and reading of passages of Holy Scripture. The readings of Scripture in the Eucharistic office were in ancient times three, the prophecy or reading from the Old Testament, the Apostle or Epistle, and the Gospel. A rubric in the Liturgy of St. James directs the reading of a passage from the Old Testament, and the practice still continued in the West in the later part of the 6th century. The reading of a portion from the Apostle, that is, St. Paul, or from an epistle of some other apostolic writer, and from a Gospel, has probably been universal from the earliest times to the present day. 
The allusions to the practice are almost innumerable. At an early date, certain books seem to have been appropriated to certain ecclesiastical seasons, and the readings to have been taken from them in order, unless the course was interrupted by some festival for which there were proper lections. It was, for instance, an established rule in St. Chrysostom's time that the Acts of the Apostles should be read in the period between Easter and Pentecost, and St. Augustine apologizes for interrupting his course on St. John, in which he had followed the order of the Eucharistic lections, because a saint's day intervened the lections of which he was not at liberty to change. No table of epistles and gospels now exists, which is certainly earlier than the time of Gregory the Great, but, quote, even the earliest Greek manuscripts bear distinct traces of having been used for liturgical purposes, close quote, and, quote, the fact that the same lections were employed by the fathers of the 4th and 5th centuries as the subjects of their homilies proves the very early date of their assignment to particular days. The word of exhortation and the exposition of Scripture were, as we have already seen, regarded as a due preparation for the Eucharistic feast. In the 4th century, preaching was regarded as a special function of the bishop, but not to the entire exclusion of presbyters. Chrysostom, still a presbyter, says at the end of a sermon preached at Antioch that he must now be silent and make way for his master. No layman, not even a monk, however distinguished, was permitted to preach in a church. In some cases, a portion of a sermon was addressed to the general congregation, including catechumens and others, while another was reserved for the faithful when they alone remained. Sosomon tells us that in Rome, neither the bishop preached nor anyone else. If this was the case, the custom certainly was broken through in the 5th century by Leo the Great, of whom we have many sermons. To speak generally, preaching was frequent in the great town churches, but comparatively rare in the country villages. Not that presbyters in charge of a church where there was no bishop were forbidden to preach, but that they frequently lacked the will or the power. It was to correct this state of things that presbyters were everywhere enjoined to preach, and that, where they were unable to do so, deacons were empowered to read homilies of the fathers. The bishop commonly delivered his address sitting on his throne at the east end of the sanctuary, though he often came forward in order to be better heard, to the rail which separated the sanctuary from the nave, or to the desk from which the lessons were read. It must not be supposed, however, that it was only in the Eucharistic office that sermons were preached. There are, for instance, two sermons of Augustine's on the same subject, the second of which must have been preached in the afternoon. Chrysostom also preached at a later hour than that of communion, though it appears that he had to combat a superstitious objection to hearing sermons after taking food. Oratory occupied in the early centuries but a subordinate place in the Western Church but in the East it was much more prominent and important, and was sedulously cultivated, the Greek preachers adopting the style which was taught in the schools of rhetoric by such men as Libanius. From the schools also, the practice of applauding admired passages passed into the churches, much against the wish of the greatest preachers. Chrysostom has to remind his hearers that they did not come to church to see a stage play. 
Sermons were for the most part carefully prepared orations delivered without a manuscript, but we hear occasionally of sermons being read. In Syria, sermons in a loosely metrical style were much in favor. Of the later portion of the liturgy, at which only the initiated, the enlightened, were allowed to be present, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, in the last of his lectures to the Catechumens, supplies us with an exact and trustworthy account as it existed in the mother of churches in the middle of the fourth century. It is to this effect. First, the deacon presents to the bishop and to the presbyters who encircle the sanctuary water to wash their hands, symbolizing the purity with which we ought to approach the holy mysteries. He then exhorts the brethren to give each other the holy kiss, a token of the oneness of their souls. The bishop then exclaims, Lift up your hearts! And the faithful respond, We lift them up unto the Lord. Then, Let us give thanks unto the Lord our God. To which the response is, It is meet and right. Then, God's mercies in heaven and earth, through angels and men, are commemorated, the strain ending in, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. Then, proceeds Cyril, quote, We beseech the merciful God to send forth the Holy Spirit upon the elements displayed on the altar, that he may make the bread the body of Christ, and the wine the blood of Christ. For certainly, whatever the Holy Spirit may have touched is hallowed and changed. Next, over that propitiatory sacrifice, we beseech God for the peace of the church, for the good ordering of the world, for kings, for our soldiers and allies, for those who are sick or in trouble, and in short we all pray for all who need help, and so we offer the sacrifice. Then we commemorate those who have gone to rest before us, first among them patriarchs, prophets, apostles, martyrs, that God, through their prayers and intercessions, may accept our prayer. After these, we commemorate those holy fathers and bishops, and all others of our body who have gone to rest before us, believing that the greatest benefit will accrue to their souls on whose behalf prayer is offered, while the holy and awful sacrifice is displayed. Upon this intercession followed the Lord's Prayer. Then the bishop says, Holy things for holy men. The consecrated elements are holy, fit for the holy alone to receive, to which the response is made, One only is holy, one only is the Lord, even Jesus Christ. Then the chanter sings the words, O taste and see how gracious the Lord is. And the communicants approach, holding out the right hand, supported by the left, so as to receive the body in the palm, saying, Amen, upon reception. Cyril recommends his neophytes to touch their eyes with the holy particle before partaking. After the body, the cup of the blood is received, reverently, with bowed head, the recipient saying, Amen. With the moisture remaining on the lips, the communicant is recommended to touch the forehead, the eyes, and the other organs of the senses. Then he is to wait for the prayer and to give thanks to God who has granted to him so great mysteries. In this description it may be observed 
that there is no mention of the recitation of the words of institution or of the oblation of the consecrated elements. St. Cyril was perhaps unwilling to mention these in such a manner as to run the risk of bringing them to the knowledge of the heathen. However this may have been, they are so absolutely universal in all existing liturgies that it is impossible to doubt that they are derived from very early, if not absolutely from primitive times. The characteristics above enumerated are found, with many differences of detail and of arrangement, in almost all the liturgies which have come down to us. These fall into five divisions. The Palestinian, of which the Greek liturgy of St. James, corresponding in its principal features with that described by St. Cyril, is probably the earliest example. The Alexandrian, typified by that called St. Mark's, the East Syrian or Nestorian, the Hispano-Gallican, and the Roman, from which the Ambrosian differs but little. Of these, the first three may be called Eastern, the other two Western, though the later also, especially the Spanish, show traces of an Eastern origin. We find in nearly all liturgies after the Sanctus, commemoration of the Lord's life or of some event in it, and of the institution of the Eucharist, oblation, prayer for living and dead, leading on to the Lord's prayer with its embolismus or expansion of the petition, Deliver us from evil. In the Eastern liturgies always, sometimes in the Gallican and Spanish, but not in the Roman or Ambrosian, we have an epiclesis, or prayer for the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the elements. In the Alexandrian, or St. Mark's, liturgy alone, the prayer for the living and the dead, and for acceptance of the sacrifice, are inserted in the preface which intervenes between the Sursum Corda and the Sanctus. The East Syrian liturgies differ from Palestinian mainly in having the intercession for living and dead before the epiclesis. The most remarkable peculiarity of the Roman rite is that the commemoration of the living is separated from that of the dead and precedes consecration. The peculiarities of the Gallican rite show that it belongs to a wholly different family from the Roman. In it, the prayers for living and dead, with the kiss of peace, follow the oblation of the unconsecrated elements and precede the sursum corda. The sanctus is immediately followed by the prayer called collectigo post sanctus, and this again by the recitation of the words of institution. The solemn processions at the bringing in of the book of the Gospels, or the lesser entrance, and at the bringing in of the elements, or the greater entrance, are particularly Eastern. And it is not only in arrangement and in some details that the Eastern liturgies differ from the Western. While in the East the liturgical forms are fixed, and nothing varies from day to day except the lections and some of the hymns, in the West almost everything changes with the festival. The Roman liturgy has regularly changing collects, as well as lections and hymns, and had anciently an almost equal store of changing prefaces. In the liturgies of the Gallican type, even the prayers which accompany the consecration change with the season. And the style of the East is markedly different from that of the West. While the prayers of the East are long, 
and remarkable for a certain solemn magniloquence in those of the west of which we have familiar instances in our own anglican collects we are at once struck by a terse and even laconic expressiveness the gorgeous east is contrasted here as in many other points with the more sober and practical west the elements were still offered by the members of the church it would seem to follow that the bread was that which was commonly used in households though it may no doubt have been specially prepared in the east there is no question that from the first the bread provided for the eucharist has always been leavened while in the west there can scarcely be said to be any distinct proof of the use of unleavened cakes before the time of leo the ninth at circa ten fifty it was indifferent whether the wine was white or red so that it was made from the juice of the grape the mixing of water with the wine was almost universal and was thought to symbolize the blood and water which flowed from the lord's pierced side or the two natures in the person of christ to avoid the latter symbolism the armenian monophysites used pure wine the consecrated elements were called yuloge a name afterwards applied to that portion of the oblations which had not been consecrated and which was distributed after celebration to those who had not communicated the old custom of sending consecrated eulogy as a sign of brotherly feeling to distant churches or bishops was forbidden by the council of laodicea in the fourth century ordinarily any remains of the consecrated elements were consumed by the clergy or it would seem in some cases by innocent children infant communion still being practiced communion in one kind that of bread only was only heard of among the manichaeans as in the course of the fourth and fifth centuries the commemorative and sacrificial aspect of the holy eucharist came to be more regarded than the receiving the heavenly food the faithful communicated less frequently in the east they are said to have contented themselves with one communion in the year but daily communion was not infrequent and christian teachers urged the faithful to communicate at least weekly councils threatened with excommunication those who did not at any rate communicate at the three great festivals even in the time of tertullian it seems to have been regarded as becoming that the recipients and the ministers of holy communion should be fasting but the necessity of communicating fasting does not appear to have been recognized before the fourth century from that time there is a general consent of testimony that the sacrament could only be given to those who had not taken food on the day of reception it was emphatically laid down by consular decrees that the clergy who administered the eucharist must be fasting the one exception was on monday thursday the whole service took during the fourth and following centuries an aspect of greater stateliness and splendor the number of clergy was greatly increased and they appeared in special and appropriate vestments these were derived from the dress once almost universal among the upper classes of the empire both in the east and west the long tunic with some kind of super vestment which bore various names the white tunic used as the ceremonial dress of a christian minister came to be known simply as alba the modern alb 
Other varieties of the tunic were the dalmatic and the Greek stikarion, both of which we find mentioned as lay garments before they were appropriated to the services of the sanctuary. The upper robe appears as the phainoles, or planeta, at a later date as the casula, or chasuble, a strip of cloth passed round the neck so that the ends hung down in front, or, for a deacon, passed over the left shoulder, was called a orarium. In much later times, the stole, and a similar strip passed round the wrist, a maniple. There is little doubt that the omophorion and the pallium are simply modifications of the stole. Quote, the color of the liturgical vestments up to the Middle Ages was always white for all orders of the clergy. Close quote. As early as the fourth century, we find the pastoral staff regarded as one of the insignia of a bishop. Rings were used by bishops as by other dignified persons from early times, but there seems to be no distinct proof of their being regarded as symbols of office before the later half of the sixth century. Early in the seventh century, we find stole, ring, and staff recognized as characteristic of a bishop, stole and chasuble of a priest, stole and alb of a deacon. The Gregorian sacramentary states expressly that no cleric stands in the church at any time with covered head unless he have an infirmity. Quote, it may be safely asserted that no case has been at all made out for a general use of an official headdress of Christian ministers during the first eight or nine centuries after Christ. Close quote. The burning of incense as a natural symbol of praise and prayer rising towards God, and as surrounding offerers and offerings with a sweet order, seems to have come into use in the fourth century. Incense is permitted by the apostolical canons to be presented at the time of offering, but the pseudo-Dionysius, possibly writing in the fourth century, seems to be the first who distinctly testifies to its use in religious ceremonial. Its use is prescribed in ancient liturgies, but it is difficult to fix a date for their several component parts. A thurible of gold is said to have been sent by a king of Persia to a church in Antioch about the year 594. The sign of the cross was constantly used both by the ministers in divine service and by lay people. Make the sign of the cross, says Cyril of Jerusalem, quote, on thy forehead, that the demons, seeing the mark of the king, may tremble and flee away. Make this sign when thou eatest and when thou drinkest, when thou liest down and when thou risest up, when thou speakest and when thou walkest. The kiss of peace was almost everywhere introduced in the Eucharistic celebration, and the faithful, as a mark of reverence, frequently kissed the doorposts of the holy house or the steps of the sanctuary, while the officiating ministers kissed the altar and the book of the Gospels. Quote, At an early period we find fountains or basins supplied with fresh water near the doors of churches, especially in the east, that they who entered might wash their hands at least before they worshipped. The earliest mention of blessing water, other than that for baptism, seems to be that in the apostolical constitutions, 
which describes the practice probably of the latter part of the fourth century. There is no trace of the use of holy water in the West until a much later period. The ceremonial use of lights was probably earlier. Beginning in the assemblies before dawn, or in the darkness of the catacombs, the use of lamps was maintained when the services were in the light of day on account of their symbolism and their festive character. There are also traces as early as the fourth century of the practice of maintaining an ever-burning lamp in the sanctuary. Kneeling was the usual posture of prayer in the churches, except on Sundays and in the season between Easter and Pentecost, when it was desired to express exulting joy rather than humiliation, and so the faithful prayed standing. The praying figures of the Roman catacombs are represented standing with arms expanded and hands open. All faces were turned towards the east, where the sun arose, the natural symbol of the light of the world. In early times, the voices of the congregation had no doubt taken a large share in the responsive portion of the service, but as the music came to be more elaborate, it fell more and more into the hands of the trained singers who formed the choir. The Council of Laodicea would indeed have confined all singing in church to these. The singing consisted either of sentences chanted by the lay people in response to the clergy, or of psalms or psalm-like compositions chanted in alternate strains by a choir divided into two bands. The latter method is believed to have been introduced, perhaps after the example of the Syrians, by Flavian and Diodorus about the year 350 at Antioch whence it spread rapidly throughout the world. This kind of music was brought into use by Ambrose at Milan to cheer the hearts of the faithful under the oppression of the Arian Empress Justina, and soon spread over the Western Church. Augustine, however, somewhat dreaded the concord of sweet sounds, thinking that he was sometimes more moved by the music than by the matter of what he heard and he says that Athanasius preferred a simple monotone to more elaborate music. Jerome was indignant with the operatic singers of his time, and Chrysostom did not like the devil's tunes to be applied to the songs of angels. End of chapter 8, part 1